Good morning. This is Dr. Matthew Dunn, host of The Future of Email with an awfully stupid case of laryngitis. <laughs> and my guest today, Rob Ashton from the UK, correct? Absolutely. Hi. Hi, Matthew. It's great to be here. Yeah. Hey, Rob. Um, Rob and I can't remember how we connected, but Rob, Rob is going to be one of the most interesting guests we've ever had in the world of email because we're going to talk about writing and the importance of writing and communication and then I'll stick visual communication stuff in there and we'll compare notes. Give people a bit, <clears throat> excuse me, give people a bit of, of background on yourself and emphasis, the company you founded and what you're doing now. Well, I, I've been in, involved in the world of improving written communication for over 30 years, first as an editor yeah. uh, and then as a founder of the company you mentioned, Emphasis, which is a, a training consultancy specializing in written communication, uh, founded that 24 years ago. Uh, since when it's worked with 80,000 people around the globe, um, all over the globe, uh, and which, which is amazing. Um, I still can hardly believe it myself. And that's all been in small groups, you know, it's, uh, so, but, but, you know, it's been a, a privilege to work with a huge range of organizations from the tech giants of Silicon Valley to, uh, even the Royal household at Buckingham palace. Uh, so that was the company I founded. Um, but I started off as a scientist, so I, I, there's always been something in me that was curious about the science of written communication and how the words we read and the words we write affect what we think and do. And so six years ago, um, I set off on a journey to really delve into that. Uh, and now I'm doing that full time. I, I, uh, I write about it and it's, uh, and I've, uh, you know, recently stepped down uh, from from running that company which is still very much alive and kicking yeah. uh to focus on 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 raising awareness uh of the of the real science behind this which there's a surprising um a surprisingly small amount of good quality information certainly in the business sphere on the web um on on this topic there's a lot of pseudoscience a lot of hearsay and wishful thinking um, but the, the, the science that, that, that researchers have been working on, uh, doesn't really get much of an airing. So I'm, I'm kind of waging a, a one man battle to, to, oh, to redress that. Battle. Well, I, that, uh, excuse me, that is wonderful, wonderful material to delve into just for context. Cause I think we'll, I think we'll use it in the course of the conversation on um, back up to emphasis for a second Yeah, and Tell me a bit about why a Silicon Valley giant or Buckingham Palace or someone would say, oh, yeah, we really should invest in our people being better in their written communication. Well, that's, that's a really great question. Uh, it, it's because I think writing is something that's, as a topic, is, is misunderstood. And I'm not, I'm not talking about the research. I'm talking about our perception of it. When, when you mention writing to most people, they think what creative writing or or you know writing writing a novel you, you know what what do you mean um but writing is something we do all day now yeah. when I, when i you know back in 1998 when i set up emphasis people were talking then about writing being on the way out you know and it's something that we've got to do less and less <laughs> yeah. of uh, and how crazy is that you know looking yeah. back you just think we had no idea because in fact, we, you know, we're more likely to, to write now almost than we are to speak. You know, if you try to get in touch with, with a help desk, um, or yep. customer services of a company, it's going to be live chat, which is a complete misnomer because it's not chat at all. Is it? It's, it's writing. writing. Yeah. Um, we email, we've been emailing for a very long time. Uh, yeah. and now I think the latest stats I have was 319 billion emails sent and received every day, every day. Yeah. That's last year. And that's going up by 15 to 20 billion emails per day, per year, every yep. year. Yep. Um, so if my phone rings, I assume something's wrong, but then with <laughs> those organizations, you know, that they recognize that it's something their people are doing all day, but also it's the it becomes the primary tool of influence. So if you are trying to um, execute on a strategy, uh, you know, you've, you, you've got the strategy, you've got the execution, you've got the results, you've got the feedback. In between all of those things, you've got communication and it's usually written communication because that's how you disseminate information throughout an organization. Uh, so in the case of 
um, the public sector, you know, of, of governments. Um, you mentioned the royal household. People need briefing. People, you know, if people are going to make big decisions, they need the information, and they'll usually do that by requesting a report on it and then an update on the report. Um, and, and that's, of course, equally true in in the private sector and and, and with those. Um, uh, very successful organizations that, that Emphasis has worked with. Um, but then in between all, all of that, we are communicating more and more just peer-to-peer. -peer. So you've got uh, uh, corporate chat services like Slack, it, where, um, again, it's it's all writing. So we, it, you know, it, go back to uh, 2020 when, when the, the world started working from home. Uh, Zoom hit the headlines, you know, and... Zoom sort of moved from being this thing that was kind of a niche product that maybe self-employed consultants and coaches used to something that that most people had heard of, uh, and um, and so it seemed like we were on Zoom all the time and we were meeting, you know, spending hours in meetings. In fact, the, what the data shows is we spent less time in meetings than we did before. We were having more meetings but shorter ones. But what were we doing in between? We probably weren't on the phone. We were probably messaging and emailing each other. So, so we've become um, a, a species that, that communicates largely using the written word. Right. And companies that are, to just back up to my earlier question, so com companies that really that recognize the centrality of that will say helping people get better at this will only help us as a company. Fair? Exactly. Exactly. And it's, it, it's a, the, the other reason it's an interesting question is that when you look at those organizations, even the ones who get it will, it, it will usually be just a subset of that company. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, you, you know, it's, you know, people, you have the, you know, you have the grammar and punctuation Nazis, you know, kind of thing, you know, kind of really, you know, who think yeah. that language is, is, is a certain way and should be frozen in aspect and that's it. Nothing changes, you know, and, um, you know, I'm not saying grammar and punctuation um, aren't important, but that you can have something that is perfectly punctuated, that, that follows whatever prescriptive grammar you are following. And, and that piece of writing can completely fail and, and, and get no results. So it's not, the, it's not the most important thing. You know, I say to people, understanding grammar is to communicating what um, understanding a workshop manual is to driving a car. It, you know, it, it's, it's, of course, it's important what's, ha what's happening under the hood and somebody needs to understand it, um, but it's still not going to get you from A to B. Um, so there's that. And, and really, I think that the reason that I am spending all this time now um, writing about this and researching this is partly because I don't, I don't think even in those organizations, most people don't realize how much writing they do and therefore how what opportunity there is to optimize what they're doing, um, to uh, and therefore optimize how the company runs. It, it even, you know, increased profits. It, it's one of those things that's just hidden in plain sight. We just don't mm. see what we're doing all day. Uh, but fortunately, you know, there are people who do recognize that and, and that they get an edge. But it's also one of those things you only really get once you, once you see it, once you see the change, you know, once you see a piece of writing that you thought was okay, yeah. and then you, you, you learn how to work on it. And then you kind of go, and people have said this, Oh, uh, okay. I get it now. You know, I can't believe that I ever let that go out as it was before because, wow, that was going to be really tiring to read or very easy to ignore. Yeah. Uh, and it really, you know, I can see that by fine tuning it like that, it, it yeah. transforms the effectiveness. Um, and because we're doing it all day, you know, it's the, it's the rising tide that lifts all boats. You know, if you work on written communication. I I'll give you, I'll give you a straw man. You may be familiar with this, but I'll give you a straw man so we can sort of finish whacking on why businesses should do this. Cause I totally agree <laughs> Um Amazon headquartered just South of me here, um, has a fairly well-known practice for big projects of the, the, the way a project gets kicked off is the person who's spearheading it comes in with a written memo. I believe it's six pages max. And everybody in the meeting 
sits and reads it and then discusses it. And I know from you know, having read about Amazon, they were a client for a previous company of mine. Um, there's a lot of work into the writing of that six pager because the entire thing could be a bazillion dollar project. We'll pivot on whether or not that that communicates well. That seems like an example of, yeah, this is worth doing. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And I've, um, I've, I've seen that, you know, I've heard of that too. Um, I've heard it was instigated by Jeff Bezos himself. I don't know if it, I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And I think if you, if you can get that down to that six pages yeah, and really you want to be able to sell it on the first page, you, you know, you don't want to be relying on somebody, you know, if you haven't got them by the end of the first page, then, uh, you, you, you're probably on the back foot and you may never catch up. Um, but it's it, what people do is, and then what this overcomes is they tend to just assume that writing is a question of transferring data from one brain to another. And yeah. therefore, if you just put the information down, then it will somehow magically work. Uh, and when you're forced to whittle it down, um, then, you know, that can be very powerful. I, I would say though, I would, I would caution that it's not just about brevity and sometimes longer is better. Uh, and this is one of the things that, um, is, a, a bit of a misconception about effective writing that short is always better. And particularly, you know, if you think about things that are, that, that would have really stripped down to their bare bones, you know, devoid of maybe devoid of context, devoid of narrative that, that they, they we're quite likely to fall flat. And I'm thinking there, for instance, of, of bullets. People often use bullets, just a series of bullets, because they think this will, this will make it short. So I just write in bullets. Um, and in fact, there was a, um, oh, there, there was a, an e a piece of writing. It was a blog post uh, on the um, HVR blog a few years ago, which was about writing like the military. Um, uh, and it, it went viral, you know, it really, it really got shared far and wide. You know, people were saying, yeah, yeah, I really like that. And they were saying things like, you know, bottom line up front, which is very much a military thing, um, certainly in the US uh, and, and British military. Um, you know, tell me, give me the bottom line first and then justify it, which is not actually how you persuade anybody. You, you know, if I say to you, you know, I'm going to say this widget and it, it, it costs $300. Do you want it? Okay, now let me tell you why. You know, immediately you're kind of going, well, no, no, I don't want it. And all your defenses are up, you know? So, so, um, you know, bottom line up front doesn't always work. Right. Just using bullets, um, is, uh, rarely works because it's a bit like trying to learn from somebody else's revision notes. You know, it's kind of, if you've been in a lecture and you've made some notes, they'll mean something to you. You hand them to someone else probably won't mean anything to that person. Right. It's the same with bullets. They are summaries of your thoughts, not summaries of anybody else's. Um, so they don't connect for that reason. Um, and that I mentioned narrative, you know, as well as I do, the importance of story in, in how we make decisions. We tell ourselves stories all the time. And I mean, all the time, you know, you're walking down the street, you're telling yourself a story with you is that you, you, you are the hero of your own story, you know? Um, and if you read something that has no story, because you need story to make sense of it, you're going to create your own. And it could be, I don't know why this person is sending me this, you know, I don't understand these notes. This person doesn't, you know, does this person know what it's talking about? Oh, I don't know. Is this important? And you've got that inner narrative, which has got nothing to do with what's been written and, and your reader is making it up themselves and you completely lost control. Uh, and that's one of the big mistakes that people make when they're trying to be brief. So to say, you know, brevity is laudable and certainly most documents are way too long. So yeah, shoot for that. But, um, but it's not the end of the, pardon the pun, it's not the end of the story. Right. It's not the end of the story. Um, this is a funny thing to drag in because it's, it's more than just writing, but that previous company I mentioned where, um, Amazon among others were a client, um, I founded one of the, co-founded one of the first companies to do what everybody now calls explainer videos. Now, uh, 2009, say it visually. And so for four or five years, great run, we had companies, mostly fortune 100 coming out of the woodwork 
as, as video was just starting to take off and we'll, we'll get outside of words into other parts of media eventually, maybe, but what they were hiring us to do was to communicate their thing clearly, compellingly in two or three minutes. And it was a, it was a fun ride to learn how to do that with them. And among the things I discovered, one, frequently they couldn't get out of their own way. The people who knew the subject best were the biggest pain on the project because they, they couldn't put a boundary around it. They wanted to shove the encyclopedia into a matchbook. Like you, it won't work guys. Sorry. It won't work. They had no priority. We want this and this and this and this and this. I'm like, fine, you get three. Which are the three important ones? Well, we want more than three. Sorry. You don't get more than three. Which you like, what's the important thing? And then putting a narrative structure to it, which like, and sometimes they feel like, oh, well, we can't possibly do that. I said, if we don't do that, no one's going to pay any attention. Like if we can't find or create the storyline that carries this thing, it's not going to work, right? It'll be, it'll be just facts with decorative characters and no one's going to, no one's going to care or they're not going to remember it. And, um, sometimes I felt like our job was to not know their subject and bring some rigor and structure and method and, and frankly, to charge them enough where we had the, uh, where we had the right to say, nope, too bad. <laughs> this is how it works. I got to where I would send drafts back, particularly the legal departments as PDFs, not, not as editable documents because particularly legal departments, they always wanted to fricking tinker with the wording. Like, Hey, you can't write dialogue for you know, like for shit. Sorry. So no, you don't get to reword my stuff and you don't know why this is structured the way it's structured. So I'm going to give you a PDF. Give me all the notes you want, but don't mess with my, don't mess with my dialogue, pal. You don't know how to do it. And it was, it was fascinating. And it was a lens on why so many, why so much written communication stinks in a way. Cause you look at the cloud of, of cloud of writing around a project like that. If the end result is 150, 200 word script, you know, we spent thousands of words getting there. And in a sense, the job was sort of trying to find the, the gold nugget amidst all of the dirt <laughs> involved in decisions about what the gold nugget was, excuse me. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's fascinating. Talk to me a bit about the other side of it, which is how we read and how that might have changed in the last 20 years. Um, yeah, I, I just, I wanted to just re respond first of all, just briefly to this idea of wanting to get too much information in, uh, and you know, you, we have this, this thing of illusory, it's called an illusory, um, superiority. If you don't know very much about something, yeah. you overestimate how much, you know, and this is all over the web, you know, people. You know, you have people who are experts, experts having, in scare quotes, um, who've, who've read a few a few blog posts, you know, and um, think they know all there is to know about that. Yeah. Um, the so-called Dunning-Kruger effect. Yes. The less we know, the more we think we know. But there is a flip side to that, which is illusory. Um, so, so the other one is illusory superiority. The flip side is illusory inferiority, where the more we know, the, the more we, we underestimate how much we know. You know, we kind of, we think that we don't know that much because we know how much else there is to know. Uh, and so, uh, and in doing that, you, you, you overestimate how much other people know. So th that's why you get that problem where people, you know, where people just want to pile in all this information because they, they overestimate how much capacity people have. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and um, incidentally, when, you, when you're encountering um, a, a topic for the first time, you're relying largely on your working memory and your working memory does not have much capacity at all. Right. And what you're trying to do is keep that there. So that, uh, I, I saw this, I, I went to a, um, an evening talk, um, a, a, a year ago, I think it was, um, possibly longer, but uh, it was on quantum computing and, um, my son was interested in it at the time and, um, took him along and this guy started talking about quantum computing and. I think I was about ooh, 10 sentences in before I just reached max, 
you, you know, I was kind of like, oh, okay. I, you know, I don't know. Hang on a minute. Because they were all new concepts. They were, I was, it's like I was opening new files for each yeah. piece of information yeah. and I was trying to hold it in my working memory. And, you know, and every, every now and then I kind of get overloaded and I go, you know, come on, Rob, come on, you know, let's go again. Uh, and it didn't work because it was all new. Uh, it, it, we used to think that um, we had capacity for you know, around seven pieces of, of information in our working memory. It's, it's, we now know it's more like three or four. You know, it's not very much. You know, when you said three priorities, you know, you were right. You're absolutely right because you can't take in much more than that, but we do it all the time. And this is, this is part of the problem. And this, I think it's also part of the problem why people don't realize they need to fine tune how they're writing because they just think, well, I'm just giving them the information and it's perfectly clear, isn't it? You know, and if I give them the information, they'll get the information and, and the way we go. Um, in terms of how we read, um, this is, again, we, we don't, there's, a, there's quite a lot known about this, uh, and um, it's not, but it, but it's not something that most people know. So, so um, researchers know quite a lot about this. Um, neuroscientists, psychologists, um, physiologists, anatomists, but not people, not the general public. So that there is, and it's really, really important because how we read is largely prediction. So what we read initially is what we're expecting to see there. And then we, and then we correct. Uh, uh, and th this goes back to uh, the, the 1850s. Um, th th there's a guy called Hermann von Helmholtz. He's a, a German um, polymath. Um, and he looked at the structure of the eye and, and said, I don't think that 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 the structure the eye is sophisticated enough. I mean, it's a wonderful, what you know, what, what you know, a, a wonderful thing the the, the, the human eye or, or the eye of any animal. Um, but it's not sophisticated enough, he said, for to for it to, to account for the pictures we see in our heads. There's so much information around us, so much you know, so many images that you know, if you just if it were just the eye we were relying on, we, it, it wouldn't work. Uh, and um, it was uh, David Eagleman, the neuroscientist, did a, a thing on PBS a few years ago um, called the, the, I think it's called the human brain or something like that. Uh, and he did this lovely thing where he took a digital camera and he was just, uh, I think he was in Manhattan and he just took a, he just said, right, okay, I'm looking around and my eye is, is you know, I'm just scanning everything. So I know what I'll do. I'll just take a few quick videos of uh, of what i'm seeing and he just kind of pointed to camera in the way his eyes would you know just scanning the horizon and then looked at the videos afterwards and of course it was just a mess but that was literally recording what was there um so the, most of our most of what we see is in the brain the brain is a you know it's 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 making the pictures for us and it relies on what's gone what we've seen before it relies on um what we're expecting to see, therefore, uh, and even you can see this at the neuroscience level. This it, it, when when you measure the signal from the eyes when you're reading, there's a signal first from the prefrontal cortex, um, before, you know, the few milliseconds before um, before the signal from the eyes, and there's also ten times as much signal coming from yes. the visual yeah. cortex. Yeah, ten times as much from the you know from that than from the eyes themselves. So this is all happening. And then we're using the eyes to update, update the picture, really. I'm going um, to restate what yeah. you just said, because this is like one of those, put a frame around it for, especially if someone's listening and doesn't, it doesn't get to see our facial expression. The brain tells the eye what to see. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. Reading and walking through your kitchen and whatever else. But Absolutely. reading exceptionally so, I think. Yeah, I mean, you see it with. I mean, you know, this is why this is why magicians are able to do their job. Yeah, you know, they misdirect attention, and you yeah. see what you're expecting to see elsewhere. Yeah. Um. So yeah, absolutely. Um. With reading, particularly, um, it, it's it definitely you know it has an even more of an effect, and and the the reason is that 
we didn't evolve to read and write. So we don't have a structure in our brain that, that from birth is devoted to reading and writing. You know, we, we, um, we have, what we have is when we learn to read is a kind of a connecting together and creating uh, multiple networks that join up things that, you know, structures in the brain that we evolved for other things. So certainly, um, you know, the visual cortex, um, the cerebellum controlling the movement of the eyes, and, but also the auditory um, areas of the brain, because when we're reading, we're using, we're not just accessing an inner dictionary, which we have to build up, um, which there's a theory that even that inner dictionary is actually recycling an area that we that we evolved for something else, um, but that, but also the sound. So it's, there are two roots when we're reading it's, um, we, we, with words that are familiar, we, we just access them from our dictionary with other words, we, we actually hear the sounds. So, and the two go together and, and also, you know, puns would never work if we, if we weren't relying on sound, you know, if you saw, if you read, uh, read a pun. You know, you wouldn't get it. You wouldn't find it funny if you weren't kind of going, oh, yeah, you know, it's it's spelt that way. But actually, it's referring to the other word that sounds exactly the same, but it's spelt differently. That would not work if you were not hearing the sound in your brain when you're reading. So all of this is happening. And, you know, that's the reason that you yeah. it takes so long to learn to read. And, and incidentally, you will pick up your um, your spoken language. You'll pick that up passively just by being around people who are speaking you know and you listen to them um but that won't happen with reading you know you have to be taught actively how to do it you know you have to be and it takes and it takes years and that's because you're rewiring your brain and you can see this you know if you see something in an alphabet that uh, you're not familiar with um say, say arabic or hebrew or russian whatever um, when you look at that, you could look at that, you could look at that all day, every day, and you would still not learn to read it. You would need someone to decode it for you. Literally. Well, it's like, it's like, it's that, it's that, uh, speed bump experience of reading something in archaic English where the S's look like gigantic F's and your brain just goes clunk when you hit yeah. that. Because exactly. You, you go F and your head goes, what? No. F is not the plural, but there's a big F there. It's not an F, yeah. but right. Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. not used to seeing it. Ab absolutely. And as you say, it just brings you to a, to a grinding halt. By the way, quick, quick backtrack about uh, 14 seconds ago. I think it's in one of Kessler's books. He says, a pun is two words joined by a string of sound. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. Exactly. Huh? <laughs> yeah, it's lovely. Yeah. And it's, and you know, if you, if you, find you might make a, a typo when you're writing and, and you might write down a word that sounds the same, but has nothing yeah. to do. And it could be a homophone. It could be, it could be a word that, um, you know, it sounds exactly the same, but it's spelled differently. So, you know, two with two O's or one or a W. Right. Um, but you know, it might also be a word that sounds kind of similar. Um, so chain and change maybe, or something like that, you, you know, it's kind of, it's got, it's got, because the artist sounds in common. Yeah. yeah. Phonemes and, and, um, and that's because you're hearing it when you're writing. So, so it's, so there's that. Um, but there is also, um, when you are reading the, the mechanics of reading limit. So it's not just a, you, you know, you've got, you've got the amount of information that the eye can take in, um, You've got the mechanics, you've got this, the way that the, the, the eyes read. So we read in these little jumps called saccades. Yes. Uh, and so we've, we've got this illusion and it is an illusion of reading something smoothly and seeing the whole thing that's just created in your brain. It's actually dum -dum -dum -dum. exactly. Well, it's like exactly. the video camera you mentioned, right? It's like, here's the skyline. Yeah. Whoa, that's horrible footage. Your brain yeah. was doing a saccade across the skyline, telling the uh, eye to see pattern absolutely yeah and the point of fine focus which is a small area of the fovea which is yep, yep. very rich in in cone in cone cells um yes. um it, it's it's tiny and there's only room there for you know might only be three or four letters so you know if you stop when you're reading something and look and see how much is in sharp focus it really is only a few letters uh, normally in you know if you're reading an email or something yeah uh, and um so and there was a 
you know, I mentioned science that people don't know about. You know, go back to 1975, there were two scientists, uh, George, McCon George McConkie and Keith Rayner, and they, what they did is they kind of created this devilish device where it would, it used an eye tracker to work out where you were looking and it would replace everything else with complete nonsense, complete gibberish. So if you were reading some text on a screen, nice. it would, yeah. you would, it was a moving window of clarity yeah. where it was the actual nice. text, it should be there. And it was only, you know, it could be up to seven, eight letters. Um, and as long as those were the right words, everything else was irrelevant. And in fact, what happened is the people, the volunteers in the experiment didn't know that there was anything wrong. They didn't notice that everything else was complete gibberish. Uh, so, it, you know, what that shows is that, you know, that is how we are reading this, this moving window of clarity. Incidentally, that's why we miss huge typos, um, you know, partly because we're expecting to yes. see it yeah, um, because of the limitations of the eye, um, but also because even when you look at it carefully, it's only a small part that's in yeah. focus. And so, it, it, and, and that is why we miss the biggest typos of all. You know, you can have something in, in you know, 34-point type, and you think, how on earth did I miss it? It's in a huge headline on a slide in my presentation. Yeah. yeah. Why did I miss that? And it's because the fine point of focus will probably just be a, a small part of one letter. So you can't you can't get the whole letter in um, until, of course, you're presenting it, and and uh, you know everyone in a packed auditorium can see it because they've got the distance and they can fit it in. Well, and also because I'm, I'm guessing you you know the research I wouldn't, but I'm I'm guessing that as the prediction mechanism is working like you're not evaluating letter for letter right you're you're on the narrative flow or the language flow and the fact that there's a letter that doesn't belong there it doesn't right that's not the structure i'm taking in i'm taking in the story you're telling me who gives a crap about the extra s even though you know you can be extremely motivated and still miss it it's yeah You've yeah. got this really strong confirmation bias. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. you just assume that it's right. Even if you tell yourself, I'm checking this carefully. Yeah. Um, I've done it. You've done it. You know, it's kind of, you, you check it 10 times and you think, how did I miss that? Um, but you come back to it a few days later and it's a different story. You know, you, you, you then spot it. Um, but when you're in the moment, what you are doing is you are using all of your knowledge yeah. to, uh, and overlaying that. Yeah. Um, because you can't there was, not um, overlay your knowledge. Sorry? You can't not overlay your knowledge. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And that leads me on to a, another example, actually, which is that um, there's a, a study, I think it's about 30 years ago now, um, Elizabeth Newton at Stanford. Um, it's called Tappers and Lit Listeners. Have you ever heard of this? Yes. Yes. I yeah. quoted this one. I'm so delighted to hear you bring that up. <laughs> yes. So do, you, so do you want to tell the story or shall I? Uh, you tell it because you sound a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> and the voice is okay. Um, yeah, it, it's so. What uh, what this this researcher did was she was trying to test how much what we hear in our brain influences what we think other people can hear in terms when we're. I mean, it was literally with sound. So what she asked them to do is she said, "Look, if you tap out a well-known tune." Um, I don't know, on a desk or whatever, if you, if you tap just the rhythm of that tune, how likely is it is that the person listening to that will be able to name that tune? Um, and, and they were, they were you know, tunes that people would know, you know, right. I, I don't know, Star Spangled Banner, but it, it's, you know, things, Happy Birthday, you know, things that were, would be familiar. And, and when you're tapping that out, you know, if you're kind of singing happy birthday in your head and tapping that out, you just think, how could, no, oh, this is going to be so obvious. Yeah. yeah. How can you not get this? Yes. Um, and the, so, so she asked people to, to estimate, you know, how many people out of a hundred will be able to get that? And the average was people thought 50, 50%, 50 out of a hundred would be able to identify these tunes. Um, and in fact, that, that the actual number was uh, 2.5% that was the average with two and a half people, but you, you know, it, it's, it was, it was a fraction of, of the, you know, we, we vastly, vastly overestimate how easy it is for people to understand what we are, you know, the information we're giving them because we've got the tune in our head uh, yeah. and we can't, we can't not hear it. As you say, you know, you can't, 
It's, have you ever done something where you were, um, where you're going to travel somewhere and you were looking forward to a vacation, you'd never been there before, and you kind of have in your mind what, what, that's, what that place is going to be like? Yeah. And you think about it and you imagine yourself there and you think, oh, it's going to be amazing. Uh, and then you go. And of course, it's it's very different from your from your model. You know, there'll be some things that are the same, but it's not the same as you imagined it. It was bound to be different. Have you ever tried to then go back to what you said to, to that picture that you had in your mind before you went there? It, you can't you can't unknow it. You cannot unknow it. Uh, and it's 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 true of all our knowledge. You know, you can forget some stuff but you can't go back to where you were before you learned it. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's, and that's why it's very difficult to put yourself in the shoes of the reader, but it's also why we do miss these, these mistakes, because as you say, you know, you can't not predict it. You can't not see it. Your brain is saying, yep, been there, done that. It's fine. Let's just move on. Come on. This looks great. Um, and it's all comes down to prediction, prior knowledge, uh, and the way the brain reads, not the eyes, the brain. Yeah. Um, I want to take the how people read thread one step farther and I'm, and I'm keeping the audience for this, uh, for this series in mind, yeah, email marketers, business professionals, um, as an avid reader, as obviously you are, uh, it bugs me to watch my own reading habits have not degraded exactly, but, but shifted so much in the last 20, 30 years as I read more and more on screen in chunks and where I was the kid who would get lost in a book and still as adult do, I skim and scan with the best of them. I sit down and go flip, 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 flip through the New York Times in about that length of time. I didn't read it. I don't know what you call what I did with it, but it wasn't what I used to call reading. And yet, I spend more time in the, in the skimming <laughs> now than I do the concentrated, focused, sit your butt down and read this material. And it, it does worry me a bit. And yet email marketers have to write to the skimmer more than the reader, I think. Reactions? Oh, oh, definitely. Definitely. There was, um, some, um, some, a big piece of research funded by um, by the EU, which which you know lots of combined lots of studies, and it found that when we are reading on screen, you know that works really well generally, unless it's something that's quite emotive, or it's something that's cognitively challenging, and then we find it easier to read in hard copy. So you know there is definitely something different about about reading on screen, and yet as you say. You know that's who that's who you're trying to reach when you are when you are writing these emails. So you have to bear that in mind. Yeah. Um. You and you have. To, I always say to people, you know, people will read until they can stop reading, and then they will. Uh. uh and you, you know, and the job of every sentence really is to get people to read the next sentence. You know, hook them in, keep them reading. It's like trying to bump start a car. The most difficult thing is to get them to read in the first place. And then you just, then it has a momentum of its own. So, but don't put stuff in there that's going to bring them to a to a juddering halt. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, an example would be, um, you know, a word that's that's going to be probably unfamiliar to them, or um, a word that's in all capitals. You know, it's kind of you can read it, you can read capitals as much as as easily as you can read stuff in, um, you know, in lowercase or upper and lowercase. But it will stand out, and it will, and so. Every time they see that, it's going, it's going chop, 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 you know, and it's giving, it's giving the, it's kind of almost drawing attention to itself. Good writing's invisible. You know, you should, you should read it without, um, w without trying or it, without even wanting to read it. You know, it, it's, it should draw you in and you're not aware that you're reading Be because of this idea that we didn't evolve to read and write. Reading is much harder than we think. Uh, and so it's much easier to just to skim on to the next thing, just as, you know, just as if you're, if you're going down your to-do list during the day and you hit something that's a bit difficult, it's much easier to just change to something else or check the news or check social media. That's what the brain does when something gets a bit difficult. It, it, it looks for a break. And if you're reading an email, it's going to say, 
oh yeah you know i'll, I'll read that later I'll, I'm, I'm just going to look at the next one or i'm going to make a cup of coffee or whatever it is yeah. so you need to make something flow but there is something that there's another reason you should do that there's something called the fluency heuristic which which says that the the easier something is to process the more likely we are to to believe it uh, and to and, and to just accept it so if you've got to work hard then we kind of think harder about the content um and we might think and then in thinking harder we might just conclude very quickly that we can't be bothered with it and we're going to do something else um but if something flows and it's easy to process we equate easy to process with true so yeah. you know if if i say to you um uh how many people live in the australian capital of sydney is it is it a million three million or five million and you might start answering the question but actually the tr the answer is n none of those because the australian capital of sydney is canberra the australian the australian capital is canberra not not sydney so what you what the brain does is it 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 answers the question that's easy to answer uh, rather than looking carefully at the information um so you know this you just you just see this all the time um you know if some but if something is easy to process and you so in, in in other words flipping that if you make it easy to process if you write it well if you make it flow if you hook people in if you keep them reading they're more likely to accept it uh, and and you really it, it, i can't stress this enough you know you really need to be very disciplined about this try to park your or overcome your confirmation bias look at it the next day looking at the day after read it and, out uh, loud read read it out loud abs absolutely send it to yourself in another format you know take a screenshot uh, and you know look at it as a, as a screenshot just anything you can to kind of override that confirmation bias um send it send the email to yourself to, to see what it will look like you know when somebody else receives it look at what the subject line will look like on your phone and think if yes. you know is uh, are the first i mean you've got i think you have about 40 characters in a, a the email on an iphone screen you know if, if it's in if it's in portrait yeah um you know what are the words at the beginning saying uh, and are they leading you to you know do they want to make you open it it's you know this has been over overdone of course with things like clickbait but originally, you know, it got the term clickbait because people would click on it, you know, so, so there are still things you can learn, you know, certainly using curiosity, um, you know, look at those first few words of your subject line and think as, as that person is scanning down their inbox, do those, are those first few words going, not the whole, not the whole subject, just the first two or three words, um, are they going to make people want to read the rest? Uh, you know, that's. It's so so important to be to be aware of that. Um, it's not a Netflix effect, isn't it? You know, you've got all these all these different things on on um, cable TV, and we as a result we don't land on any of them. We just keep going yeah. to the next yeah. one yeah. because we can't decide. So you've got to make them decide just to take a take a chance, and then when you've got them, get them reading that first sentence, and then keep them reading. We can. We can do this for hours. I swear to God, really could. This is really awesome. But I'm trying to think of uh, uh, some some sort of tail off things. Watching the clock, so I don't, I don't tie up your whole evening. Um. Okay, one. If you were gonna give very encapsulated advice, sort of why you're doing what you're doing now. <laughs> What would you say, particularly to people, because I think the audience for this podcast is mostly folks in, in some part of business, um, like, what do you tell them about reading and writing? How do you distill what you're learning right now? It's reading is something that is incredibly powerful. You know, you're seeing dots and squiggles on the screen and you're hearing a voice in your head. It's a lot harder than we think. So that, that miracle is a miracle of adaptation, not evolution. It's something, the effort of that decreases, but it never goes away. And it, it's very easy to, to forget that. However, it, it is something that gives you the opportunity to 
lead the voice in someone's head to to influence them to get the decision you want but you don't do it by viewing it as transferring data from your head to theirs yeah you've got to do it by synchronizing your brain with theirs and that can be done it's not easy but if you learn more about it and you you know and with practice uh and um delving into these some of these topics you can get a, you, you you get a much better chance of doing that and if that sounds daunting i would i would say the encouraging bit is most people aren't doing this you know most people don't get this most people are taking it for granted so if you delve into this and you start to be um to to improve your knowledge and to and to and to start to understand some of these mechanisms and the and the techniques that that go with them then you give yourself a you give yourself a winning edge and you only need to win by a nose just like a horse reading uh, winning a race <laughs> you know you only need yeah. that small advantage and most people aren't doing it so it is within reach you know you don't have to do what i've done uh, and dedicate your life to it you know there are things you can do and every every one thing you do they stack up they all help so just doing one of the things or being aware of one of the things that I've mentioned today will, will definitely give you a competitive edge. Um, and as I say, it, it goes across right across the board. It's the, it's the rising tide that lifts all boats. If you can, if you focus on this, it won't just help you in your marketing. It will help you in your execution. It will help you in your strategy. Um, the, the, the whole shebang operations, you know, it's the, it connects everything together. And because we write all the time and we read all the time and we don't speak to each other, this is the golden thread. This is the thing that can, that can tie it all together. There is. And, you know, I, I see evidence supporting exactly what you said in some unexpected places. For example, um, I run a SaaS software company and I've been involved with a few groups that are essentially how to make your SaaS software business work better. The top piece of advice is always talk to your customers, live with them, understand them, you know, write down what they say, which really amounts to, you know, like get on their wavelength and be in sync with them. Yeah. And, you know, it adds that, you know, use their language. And use their language. In fact, you know, the advice is explicitly is essentially pick up and steal their language. If a customer says, you know, whatever, squiggle, you go like, why do I keep hearing squiggle? Maybe we should use squiggle as a, yeah. as a key word. Why? Because they're using it. Absolutely. And that contradicts the contrary advice, to, to the uh, common advice to um, not use jargon. It, you know, because if you're using the customer's jargon. Customer's jargon. Then yeah. The customer's yeah. jargon, yeah. not yours. Not yours. Yeah. Yes. You know, so you, you can use that to be, uh, you know, of course you can really screw that up and use it correctly. <laughs> so you, be, you know, get someone to check it, but, but at least listen to those things. Listen to how they describe their problems. Yes. And describe their problems in their terms, not yours. In their terms. Um, and you will only do that by talking to them. That's the only way to do it. You can't, again, you can't unhear what's in your head. Which, and you just said it, so I was hoping we'd have a chance to at least touch on it. Um, that, that bridge between verbal language and written language that, that we kind of, we have to do as a, as a person, you, there's no other way to get there. It, it's, it still fascinates me how talking and writing are not the same thing. And you must know a bunch of research about this. Like they coexist, they, they affect each other fundamentally, but they're not the same. It's almost not the same language, I swear. Uh, we do often use, yeah, different terminology, different sentence structures. And if you hear somebody, if, if you hear somebody speak, or rather if you transcribe exactly what they've said. Yes. When you read the transcript, it doesn't make sense. And yet when you were listening to them, it did. Made perfect sense. So, so you know, there's something else going on, going on there. Um, but it, it's, yeah, we did, we evolved to speak and listen. Yes. So this is something we are hardwired to do. Uh, uh, so it's different in that respect. There's even evidence that, that, that the, the, the release of hormones is different in, in, uh, writing. There, I believe that. I believe there that. was, um, have you ever been stuck in a, um, kind of a tense exchange of email or Slack messages or whatever, text messaging, 
and you're trying to resolve it with, and you know, why do we do this? We just, we just stay <laughs> texting, you know, trying to resolve it. When if we literally, if we took that phone from yep. in front of us and just moved it up to our ear, we could, we could, yeah. we could resolve it. Yeah. But you know, when you actually speak to somebody, often what happens is you feel this kind of relief wash, washing over you. And you kind of go, oh, right. And your shoulders drop. And you go, oh, I see what, I see what you mean. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And you work it out. Um, well, th this, well, there's some research that's, that, that suggests that when we are listening to the human voice, we release oxytocin, um, which, which is something that's really central to, to how we interact as human beings. Um, but when we're reading, when we're reading, when we're reading text messages from those same people, we don't release oxytocin, Dad, yeah. you know, which makes sense because, you know, there's nothing less natural than reading and writing you know, and, yet we, and yet we are wired to speak and listen. And yet this is, this is what, you, what you're doing. I'm, I'm watching the clock and I hate to, cause like I said, I seriously could type your whole evening, but where do you want to take what you're doing now in, in terms of impact on others? You could call that business. You could call that mission. You could call it chicken salad, but where are you headed with this? Um, it's this, this will hopefully find its way into a book. So that's the end game for me it is a book and, um, but something that not just people who are, you know, fascinated by grammar and punctuation, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to preach to the choir here. This is something that just feels much bigger than that. Um, and so really what I'm trying to do is to, is to get this message out there and yeah, it, you know, I'm doing a lot of work and, and it's. I'm writing about it on my blog. I've put together a, uh, some free training as well. Um, but it's, um, it's, that's the, that is the goal, you know, this, and this could take me, this could take me the rest of my life. You know, it's just something, it's certainly a big enough topic, uh, for that. Um, and it's, and it's not going away. So yeah, I'm just really everything I can to get this message out there and make people more aware of, uh, of this research. Terrific. I'm going to talk to you for a minute after we stop recording, but Rob, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for connecting and conversing. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. Can I just mention, actually, if people want to, want to um, sign up for that um, course, it, they just go to robashen.com slash influence. Yep. It's called Silent Influence, and it's, it's all in there, and that's probably the best way to keep, keep on top of this. But, uh, no, Matthew, it's been, it's been an absolute pleasure, and thanks so much for inviting me. Terrific. My guest? Rob, Rob Ashton, robashton.com. And I am signing up for Silent Influence as soon as I finish talking with Rob. Rob, thanks. We'll cut the recording.